One of the most confounding experiences that I've had as a parent of children is how to get through to them about the things that would benefit them most. I don't think I'm alone in this. You've probably been there yourself if you're a parent or a grandparent. It seems like uh, I have tried just about every conceivable strategy for inspiring my kids to live in the way that I know will benefit them most. Academically, for example, I can't uh, tell you how many different strategies Amy and I try just to get our kids to do their homework, to get out in front of assignments, to go over their notes, or even to take notes. And in the case of each one of our children, it seemed like this effort we made to, to, to impress upon them the value of these things only finally came through when calamity struck them. When they experienced some kind of fundamental consequences for their choices that led them to a new way. And thankfully, each of them has found that new and better, more effective way for themselves. Um, I don't know if you have had this experience in your own journey or whether perhaps you personally have gone through that developmental process yourself. But I do want to pose this morning a question that arises out of the text for today. What does God do when his preferred approaches do not seem to succeed in producing the changes that he seeks in the life of his people? What is God to do when all of the graces that he lavishes upon us, the instructions that he gives us, do not prove enough to produce the kind of fruit in our lives that he most longs to see. When perhaps our lives are resplendent with all kinds of the fading flowers of this world, but not with that deep fruit of character, that great impact and influence that he wants our lives to have, what is God to do? Well, I know someone who could answer that question, and he does actually for us in Daniel chapter 4, our text for today. At chapter 4, the book of Daniel uh, makes a radical shift. It goes from being an account, a third-person narrative about the faithfulness of God's servant Daniel and his friends, people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It goes from a, a focus on how they are living their lives in this foreign land to being a first-person testimony of one of the most unlikely converts in all of human history. The witness in this case identifies himself and his target audience in the first verse. And in fact, also his intentional message, his desire, the reason he's giving us this witness. This is, by the way, one of the conventional ways in which correspondence was conducted in the ancient world. Very often at the start of a letter, you can see this if you go back and read the letters of Paul or of Peter and the other apostles, uh, they begin by identifying themselves, they then di directly tell you who they're speaking to, and then very often they will add a little uh, extra statement that suggests the big thing they're trying to have their message uh, uh, create or accomplish in the lives of the listeners. So listen as we read from Daniel chapter 4 at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, the writer, to the peoples who live in all the world, he's aiming that everybody should hear this message. It's not a narrow message. His target audience is the entire 
uh, civilized world. May you prosper greatly. His goal, his intention with this message is to increase the flourishing, the well-being, the hope, the, the abundance of everyone who hears these words. Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. And then from there, King Nebuchadnezzar goes on to the topic of his proclamation. And he says, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now if you know anything about King Nebuchadnezzar, if you have been following along with the storyline of the book of Daniel along the way, you have got to be a bit amazed at these words. This person speaking to us in this way is the same man who demanded on pain of fiery death that everybody in his country worship a 90-foot-tall golden monument to his eternal kingdom. This is the guy who is now pointing us towards God's eternal kingdom instead. He's saying, in effect, look, what I am... And what I represent is merely dust, my friends. If you want your life to be significant, if you want to give your life to something true, then make your aim the service of the everlasting kingdom of God. What has happened to this guy? What accounts for this radical turn of focus and of character. Well, he says, it all started like this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, content and prosperous. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar tells us that he was at ease and prospering in his palace, he's really saying something. Archaeologists and historians tell us that the most imposing of the king's many palaces, and I think shared with you in, in a prior message that I think uh, we believe that he constructed about 24 of them. <laughs> he had some 24 palaces. Uh, but the most impressive of these palaces stood on a low hill with a dramatic view of the ancient ziggurat or Tower of Babel. How many of you have heard of that one? The most famous skyscraper, perhaps, of all time, the Tower of Babel. It was just 600 yards to the south of this palace of his that he constructed on this little plateau. And the residential portion of this palace, we know through archaeological study, had walls made of fine yellow brick and, and it had uh, floors of white and mottled sandstone and there were magnificent artistic reliefs all throughout this spectacular uh, edifice. 
Uh, they were done in vivid blue glazes that adorned various surfaces of the house, which you can see to this day. We have recovered these and preserved these in some of the great museums of the world. And out in front of the house were these gigantic basaltic uh, lions guarding the entrance. You're getting this picture. Now, no other feature of this particular estate really compared with its famed hanging gardens. How many of you have ever heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon? Widely regarded <clears throat> as one of the wonders of the ancient world. And what made these gardens so very stupendous is that they were built atop a succession of platforms, almost like a wedding cake. And each of these platforms uh, was held up by concentric circles of these magnificent colonnades, and it went up 75 feet, think five stories of platforms. And, and the topmost of those platforms had built into it a deep uh, bed of soil. So deep, in fact, that it could support the growth of not only of fragrant flowers and flowering uh, bushes, but also of massive, deep-rooted trees. That's not all. Concealed within the colonnades themselves were these amazing slave-driven engines, slave-powered engines that dredged up water, sucked up water from the Euphrates River below, and took them up through the colonnades to the very highest, 75 feet above, to water these gardens and keep them perfectly succulent and fecund and magnificent. To put it succinctly, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just recreate his own version of paradise. And one of the going theories is that Babylon was built in the location associated with Eden. He didn't just rebuild his own version of paradise. He lived in the treehouse at the center of it. So when he said he was content and prosperous... He truly means this. I think you get this picture. So let me come back to the question that I posed at the start. When God showers someone with really resplendent graces, when he allows them a life of great luxury and of learning and love, but it does not somehow produce in them a fruit in keeping with those graces, it does not lead them to even honor the giver of all of those graces. When God entrusts somebody with a knowledge beyond the usual measure, in fact gives to them a, a picture of the future to which they can properly align their lives, as he did in two different dreams he gave to Nebuchadnezzar, gave him a clue as to what was coming in hopes of seeing his life uh, realigned toward that particular future, but it still does not inspire a reordering of life when God gives somebody dramatic demonstrations of his power, and particularly of his saving power, as he did to Nebuchadnezzar when he rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace right in front of him, or like God has done, we believe, in raising Jesus from the dead, when God demonstrates his saving power in that dramatic kind of way, but it doesn't result in more than a short-term flowering of faith. 
What's God to do? How is he to get the attention of his kids? How is he going to bring about the change that he knows needs to come for the well-being of that person and all of the persons they come to influence? I'll tell you the answer to that question, says Nebuchadnezzar in our text for today, in not quite these words, but here's the sense of it. God, first of all, will find a way to shake your tree. For the king of Babylon, the shaking came in the form of a nightmare. It came in the form of a nightmare more disturbing than the one he'd had back in chapter 2. I had a dream that made me afraid, Nebuchadnezzar tells us. Before me stood a tree in the middle of the land, and the tree grew large and strong, and the top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. This is the image that Nebuchadnezzar has. It was a lovely, a comforting image, but then the dream goes on. I looked, and there before me was a messenger. The word messenger, when it gets um, uh, translated in New Testament terms, is the word angelos, which means angel, a messenger from God, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he called out in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it, and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots remain in the ground. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it's very, very discomforting to him, and just as he had done in chapter 2, when he had another dream, he calls in the wise men, the astrologers and sorcerers, and all of the, the soothsayers of of Babylon, which as I explained was a major industry in that land at that time. And as in the first instance, they're useless. They really don't know how to interpret the dream in a practical way or maybe they're afraid to interpret the dream because the symbolism here is really not that hard to figure out. So he brings in Daniel again and as in the first instance, Daniel tells the truth. And it's risky to tell the truth to a king, a potentate who may not like the bearer of the message. But Daniel tells it to him like this. Your majesty, you are that tree. You are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown till it reaches the sky. Literally, those skyscrapers, you can picture those ziggurats. Your greatness has grown in this way and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. And you can see Nebuchadnezzar swelling with pride as Daniel is acknowledging this reality. And then Daniel drops the other shoe. He says that the heavenly messenger that follows in the vision has come to tell Nebuchadnezzar that he has not been fruitful in the ways that actually count with God. He's resplendent with a certain kind of fruit, but not the fruit that matters most to God. He has been guilty of colossal pride, evident in this self-indulgent, self-glorifying lifestyle, and a failure to use his resources and his powers 
to be kind to the oppressed. This is what God expects of those who have been well-resourced, that they build resourceful relationships with those who do not have them. Don't get me wrong, Nebuchadnezzar was not all bad. He had some decent spiritual bark, even if it didn't go too deep. He greatly admired Daniel, who was a servant of the living God. He gave credit to God several different times in the story thus far for the miracles that he had done. But the fact remains that at the heart of the tree of Nebuchadnezzar's life were carved, in a sense, words once expressed by the uh, dictator Mussolini, I worship no God but my sovereign will. I submit to you today that one of the greatest realities and dangers in our society is that those are the words that are carved on many a human heart. That the radical individualism of American life, the massive prosperity we have enjoyed, the unprecedented capacities we now have at our fingertips have led us to a point where we are so enjoying of ourselves and our own capacities that we no longer even admit the right of anyone to tell us that we could, uh, that we might not choose all of the things that we have chosen for ourselves. That there may be a will, a sovereign will, that is even greater than our own. Contrast those words of Mussolini to the words that were cut upon the tree we encounter at Calvary. When Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, says, yet not what I want, Father, but thy will be done. Not my will, but your will, Father, be done. What I want to ask you today ask you to ask of yourself very personally is what truly are the words carved upon the heart of my tree whose will is preeminent in my life whose will gets the service of my energies and my resources most fully I will tell you how you can know uh, which message really lives there because if you have given your life over to the one who belongs truly on that throne, uh, if you've done that, if you've got his spirit and his will flowing through you, you will tend to bear the sort of fruit that we see in Daniel and his friends in the story. Because God is kind, your roots are planted deep in one who is patient and kind, you will tend to be so. You will tend to have compassion even upon your enemies. You may not be perfectly like the one who looked down from the cross at the jeering torturers, happy to see him there, and pronounced, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But you will be extending more grace even to difficult people than many of the other folks of this world will be inclined to. Because God is compassionate towards the needy, you will show kindness towards the oppressed. Because the Lord is holy, you will increasingly shun, as Daniel and his friends did, the defiling food that's constantly being jammed down your throat and into your brain in this society of ours. You are going to choose a different kind of diet. 
You're going to seek to feed upon things that are noteworthy and pure and commendable, as Paul says, far more than the junk food that's constantly being pushed at us. If you are truly rooted in Christ, if God is on the throne of your life, because he is sovereign, you will commit your worries and your stresses to him in prayer. You won't need to self-anesthetize in all of the ways that we do so often in our time. And because God is the one and the only Lord, you will refuse to bow down to the modern-day gods of Babylon. You will not get distracted by all of the shiny objects, the glistening gold of our world. You will be focused on pursuing the way of God's kingdom. And because you serve Daniel's God, you will regard your position and your resources as tools not just for your own aggrandizement or my own aggrandizement, but we will look at these things as meant for the service of the king and his kingdom. Who really sits on the throne of our lives is the great challenge of this text for us today. Who truly sits there. Jesus said, you'll know the health of a tree by the fruit that it bears. He said that very clearly. You won't be able to hide that. The fruit will tell you the health of the tree. I see a lot of good fruit around the life of our church family. I do, indeed. But if a tree is not really bearing much of the fruit that God longs to see, then said Jesus, my father who is the vine dresser, who is the great gardener, will take measures to address the problem. He will not let the problem continue without seeking to address it. And he will do it in the same way that he did with Nebuchadnezzar. First, he will try to shake your tree. Step number one, God will try to shake our tree. Is it possible that God is doing that with some of us right now? Um, could it be that that crack in your health is God's way of reminding you that you're going too fast or that you're, uh, he wants you to think more about how to wisely use the time that you have, as precious as it is? Might that tremor that's being felt in some branch of your family's life right now be God's call to you to invest yourself more deeply in these precious relationships that you have? Could God be using some wind of change in your social or your vocational life to stir you to try and examine more deeply your values that you've been living by? Could the loss of luster on some of the leaves of your lifestyle be God's urging to you to put down your roots now more deeply into that, into that fundamental security and significance that no termite or tempest can take away? Uh, is, is God in one way or another trying to shake up your life in some fashion right now to get your attention, to move you towards some needed changes? If so, there may be another measure that he will take if this pattern we see in Daniel chapter 4 holds uh, true. He will bring before you some Daniel who will help to interpret the shaking. Uh, maybe it will be a spouse that will help you interpret it. 
Uh, Maybe it will be some other family member or a best friend or maybe even somebody you think of as an enemy. I remember a time in my life when I I was having struggles, struggles with relationships in college and it was actually an enemy that shook me up, that that interpreted it for me. He says, oh Dan, you're having this problem because there are things about you you will never change. And I said to him, no, I, I can change those things. What are those things? He says, well, that's the problem. Uh, you, you can't see the need to change because you're using your problems to see. It's your perspective that's messed up. You have a whole way of coming at life that actually needs complete overhaul. He was my enemy. But this was the truth I needed at that moment to look at the way I was prioritizing my life. Maybe God will send you somebody like that. Maybe It will be somebody in your workplace or maybe right here at church or in your small group. Pray that God sends you a Daniel to help you make sense of the shaking that goes on in your life. It will be hard to listen to that person. It was hard for Nebuchadnezzar to listen to Daniel. It was hard for David to listen to Nathan. It's hard for me to listen to my wife. But there's such life and truth and light that comes from these people. You'd have to be a masochist to enjoy such messaging when somebody comes along and points out some rotting limb or hollow tree trunk in your life. But what a fool we will feel ourselves to be later if someone was there trying to speak the truth and we didn't listen. Maybe the shaking has already happened. Perhaps somebody has helped you understand what God is calling you to repent of or to change, or as Daniel puts it to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, to renounce your sins by doing what is right. That's what God is always looking for. He wants us to turn away from that which does not lead to life for us or the people we influence and towards that which does. That's what repentance, uh, it's what metanoia, transformation is all about. God is wanting us to make that shift That gracious shift. But of this third truth, I'm absolutely sure, when God delivers this message to us, he will give us time to respond. He will give us some time to respond. Why do I say that with some confidence? Well, because even when it isn't our style, God's love is patient and kind. Uh, The Apostle Paul reminds us, Uh, He believes all things, loves all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God's love is long-suffering. It endures. It it is steadfast. And that, I think, is why the Scriptures tell us in this particular story in Daniel chapter 4 that after delivering this message through the prophet Daniel, even after God has done so much to already try to get through to Nebuchadnezzar over the years leading up to this moment, God still waits an entire year more for the man to change. And Nebuchadnezzar himself tells us that 12 months later, God found him walking on the roof of the royal palace amongst the trees in the hanging gardens saying to himself, this is Nebuchadnezzar, saying to himself, is not this the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Woe to any leader in any age 
who dares to think it's all about them. Woe to any individual at any strata of power and influence who dares to believe that all that we accomplish, that all we enjoy is fundamentally about us. It was then, only then, that the heavenly gardener did what had to be done. Paradoxically, if there was to be any hope for that tree, the gardener needed to prune it. And he did more than prune it. He cut it down. He cut it down. The Bible says that while the king's prideful words were still in the air, a voice came from heaven This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people. You will live with the wild animals. Seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone as he wishes. As near as historians can figure it out, Nebuchadnezzar, about this moment, had a complete nervous breakdown. He completely lost it. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the film, The Madness of King George. You can go and get it on Netflix today, if you choose. It is a a true story about a similar moment in the life of the monarch of England, in which the individual fell into a, a period Uh, where he lost himself completely. He lost his mind completely and, and utterly collapsed. Maybe you don't need a, a picture, uh, or a movie to, to tell you what that kind of collapse is like. Um, maybe you've gotten to a place in your life before, or maybe you're on the verge of it, or maybe you soon will be there where the tree of your life, as you have known it, comes crashing to the ground. The loss of a job can do this. The, the, the loss of a marriage can do this. The loss of a, of a loved one can do this. These, there are many things that can bring the tree crashing down. And in these moments, we're no longer sure who we are anymore. Everything has gone away, everything secure has disappeared. What I want to encourage you to think about in those kinds of moments is the possibility that, that, that these painful changes, should they come upon you, contain an opportunity. Let me be very blunt to say that not all of the pain that comes our way, the tragedy, the loss, that comes our way is God trying to reform us, okay? Some of it just goes with life. Jesus said, in this world you will suffer. In this world you will suffer. Not all of it. There are losses and terrible tragedies that happen that are simply part of the brokenness of this creation. And they're not God's life lesson for you. Though they contain opportunity to find love in a deeper measure, to depend upon him in greater fashion, But sometimes God does purposely cut people down. Sometimes God does allow them to be cut down because he knows that for some of us, only a breakdown will bring a breakthrough. For some of us, it's going to take a complete breakdown to bring about that creative breakthrough. 
And so what I want to encourage you to think about is the possibility that what may sometimes look to you or to me or to people we know and love as God's utter abandonment of us could actually be God moving to bring about the utter improvement of us. That is also possible, I believe. I've shared with you that my own life story is, has contained this theme in a very deep measure. You know, when I was a younger man, I, 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 I'd staked so much of my identity to a, um, a, a sense of, of pride and having a, a father who was an influential politician and a lot of my sense of security on, on being part of this all-American happy family and much of my sense of prosperity on living in this nine-bedroom home on a 10-acre estate. I mean, all of my life was bound up. I was the guy walking on the roof garden thinking, wow, isn't this great? And how good this is for me. This was me at that point in my life. And then in the space of a few short months, the the congressional race was lost and the family was split by divorce and the palace was burned up by fire. Chop, chop, chop. And the tree of my life came crashing down and I went into a period of just insanity and drug abuse and alcohol abuse and just total confusion. I was Nebuchadnezzar crawling around just trying to find uh, my next feeding, my next source of momentary security. But what I want you to understand is that by the grace of that breakdown, I I experienced a breakthrough. I I came to a place where that season of madness led me to a whole new uh, sense of identity as a servant of God's kingdom and a sense of security as a child of the king and a feeling of prosperity as an heir of of the abundance of of heaven. And out of the old stump of that former life, God grew up for me and still keeps growing for me the tree of a much more abundant kind of life. And some others of you could tell a story about that in your own experience. You know, I want to conclude with the question with which we began. How does God reach a human being when his first and preferred approaches don't seem to bring the change that he seeks? Someday in eternity, you're going to get to hear the answer to that story out of the life of one of God's greatest saints, one of his most profound worshipers who once upon a time was merely the king of Babylon. And I hope it's a great conversation you have with him one day about it. But in the meantime, take it from this sinner. The Savior, if he loves you, will shake your tree. And he does love you. And he may send a Daniel to you to try and help you interpret the meaning of that shaking. And he will be patient. He will wait as long as he possibly can for you to respond to the truth that he's trying to press into you. But if all else fails and the watchword of your life suddenly becomes for you as it was for me, timber! Please, in that moment, when the crash comes, consider the possibility that what you're going through is not actually the result of the acts of anarchy, 
but is in fact the action of the blessed blade of God seeking to bring from your life an even greater harvest. For he loves you and longs for an even greater fruitfulness than some of us have dared to dream. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Our Lord and our God, we are sobered by the thought that it may take pain as the megaphone that rouses us, that it may take pain as the pruning shears that enable us to experience a greater fruitfulness. So Lord, we are going to resolve today to try and be more open to your word, to your way, praying that that pain is not necessary. But if it becomes necessary, Lord, give us the grace to receive uh, this discipline, this challenge, this shaking for the greater glory you're seeking to produce. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.